Good morning. My name's Adam. For those of you that don't know, uh, for those of you that don't know too, I would say welcome. I give you a big warm welcome. Uh, Bethany is a church that loves those who are not familiar with the church, who are maybe would consider themselves outside of even, uh, even trying to maybe a bit skeptical of the thing of this person named Jesus Christ. So again, we will do everything we can to help uh, walk you through uh, this message this morning. I will be honest, the message this morning is very much geared at those of you who are familiar with the church, and would even call yourselves Christ followers, but uh, if you're here as a guest, welcome, and I'll do my best to help define terms, etc. One thing I want to mention for all of us, um, is this this week? It kind of felt like Christmas time. I got all these boxes that showed up at the church. Our known journal is here. Uh, for those of you who maybe have one, it looks a little different than this. We're on page uh, what page page eighty one uh, for this week. For those of you who don't know what this is, we are we are passionate about uh, you encountering a personal relationship with your Creator. He loves you. He's for you. He wants to walk with you in a very personal way. He knows you better than anyone else uh, possibly can know you. And true life is found when you're in a relationship with Him. So. Uh, we hope that here on Sunday morning, you in some way are challenged in that or, or get to know him, uh, push in and, and wrestle, and, and, you, and you sense that, and you walk away from here going, you know what, I really took in this morning. But more than that, though, as excited as we are about that, we're even more excited to encourage people to say, hey, man, as awesome as it is to sit here in a service like this and, and meet God, uh, man, it's even more special to meet with him, just you and him face to face. So uh, we do that through reading scripture. So to help you do that, uh, we put together a journal. There's some questions in there. The verses run right along with our messages. So again, grab one of them. They're free. They're out there. I just ask you to use it. Uh, for those of you who say, I'm not a journaler, but I like to read the reading plan. The plan is coming. That'll be here uh, next week. And it just comes in a format where you just see the verses and can read and kind of follow along. So that's that. Now, I also want to pray my voice. I woke up yesterday and my voice went somewhere else. I don't know. It wasn't with me. So uh, it's okay here today. I made it through first service. But if you'll um, uh, let me uh, just kind of open up some prayer here. I step into this message. I will be honest. It, this, is, um, this is not a light, warm, fuzzy, feel-good message, uh, which is okay. Scripture is full of messages like that at times. And then ultimately, I find when we push into them, uh, we end up strengthened. So I want to encourage you to wade into the deep end with me this morning. Uh, so I want to ask for prayer for my own voice um, and also uh, just for all of us in this room as we step into this subject of something that's kind of unfamiliar to us, and that's persecution. God, thank you for Jesus. Again, um, uh, God, give me a strong voice. It, it's, it's weak right now. Um, God, help me to speak the things that you've laid in my heart that I've wrestled with all week. God, I pray for all of us as we are sitting here uh, in this room and the persecution is somewhat foreign to us here in America. Um, so God, would you bring it home? Would you bring it into our own hearts and, and help us wrestle with why it's foreign, uh, what, what the scriptures say about it. But more than anything, God, may we meet you. May we encounter you. May we um, understand more fully who you are. As we leave here this morning, would we... Um, a sense of awe and wonder and, and a love for you be deepened uh, no matter where we're at, whether we're here exploring and skeptical or whether we're here and we're already kind of in love with you and, and looking forward for the next step. Uh, God, we love you and thank you for Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen. We turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. It's page 912. If you don't have a Bible, grab one there in the seats in front of you. It is page 912 in those Bibles. We'd also say if you're new to the church, new to the, maybe you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd even say take that one home uh, with you. Uh, enjoy it, read it. Um, our gift from us to you. Now here's where we've been. Acts chapter 8 is kind of bring everyone up to speed. This is the seventh week. Uh, we typically don't do series quite this long. 
Uh, but this is a big book. Uh, again, we didn't even touch a fraction of it, but we're going through the book of Acts. Uh, seventh week talking about this book, Acts. It, if, if a lot of you will see in your title, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Just as way as review, because what it really is detailing, what it's really about, is it's following Jesus' followers and the story of them starting the church. See, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a horrible death. He rose to new life, and then he goes back to heaven, and he leaves his spirit. He leaves himself with his followers, and he says to him before he goes, listen, I want you to go into all the world, and I want you to make disciples. I want you to baptize people. I want you to teach them to follow the things that I have taught you to follow. And then he, then he kind of, the, you, you read the, heard those verses read as before I came on stage. He said, I want you to go and be my witnesses. Uh, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where kind of where they're at at the moment when Jesus was talking to them. I want you to be my witness in Judea, uh, Jerusalem, or sorry, Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth. And I want you to go do this thing. As they do it, you're going to start this thing called the church because they, they remember back to when Jesus says, listen, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So the whole story of Acts is the story of this thing called the church. Jesus' people following him. That's the church. People, church is a group of people. It's a movement. Uh, people following him, following Jesus, trying to reach those and love those who are not uh, following him. So that's what this is all about. Now, I want to do this morning to open up this morning, before we get into Acts chapter 8, I want to talk about some statistics. I'm a bit of a nerd that way. I love statistics. I love analyzing them. I love looking at them. I love asking questions about them. And when you look at statistics on the American church, here we are 2,000 or so years later from these pages that we're reading. So we say, wow, 2,000 years later, this thing that these guys started, these 12 that we call the disciples or the apostles, it's still in existence. How are we doing? Now, when you just zero in in the American church, there's a lot of statistics you can look at to answer this question, and almost all of them are not pretty. Now, I want to share these not to beat us up, not to be negative, not to say shame on us, but just to, just to look at them and ask what do they mean and, and, and kind of I think that will help us move into some of where we're headed this morning. First one, across the board, no matter which statistical group you look at, attendance, church attendance in America is significantly down. Um, they really started, uh, really started following this closely in the 80s and 90s, and it just keeps going down. It's dropping. But depending on who you look at, you'll see anywhere it's, uh, right now, this morning, some will say the highest number you can find is 40% of Americans will attend a church on a regular basis, 40%. Now, that number is argued with because then when you have pastors and denominational leaders that give attend, actual attendance numbers, I mean, we're only at like 20% of Americans attend church. So there's arguments whether that, that 40% is, you know, a lot of it's done through phone calls. So you get a phone call that says, do you attend church? And, of course, many people have that halo effect, right? You ever study this, study, study statistics, know this? Well, yeah, I attend church. Well, how often? Do you attend? Oh, I'm there regularly. I mean, yeah, I'm. And so again, they get checked. So 40% is the high number. 20% of all Americans right now are in church is a low number. Somewhere between is. So, but again, that is down. We used to be over 50% in the 90s. And he go back even before that was up at 60%. So we continue to drop off. The, the age group that's dropping off the most is young adults, uh, is the age group that's really exiting uh, quite uh, significantly, actually, and they're not returning. Here's another statistic for you. 77% of those that claim to be Protestants, we're just talking Protestant now, attend church less than, these are people who would say, I am committed to the church. Okay, 77% attend church less than 12 times a year. So you think about that. That's less than once a month that people will be in church. Now, you continue with that same study, that same uh, research group, finds that 22 to 23% who would say we are committed. I mean, we are, church is our life. I guess how many times they, how many times they go? 
three times out of eight weeks. So that's less than twice a month. That's people who say we are committed to this thing called the church. Let me give you another statistic. This, one's, this one I find interesting. Um, a growing healthy church will lose in a year 10%, 10 to 15% actually, of its average weekly attendance, adult attendance. So right now, adults, we have between 300 and 325 is our average right now of adult attendance week to week. So when, if this statistic is accurate, in this next year, 30 to 35 of you We'll say goodbye to Bethany. We'll walk away. Now, some of you say, well, that's expected. That's normal because some of you are moving. Some of you may get a job relocation. But, but I say, man, all these statistics point to, and there's a lot of things they point to. And I encourage you to, to step in and, I mean, you can Google, find all your own statistics it's, and just have the discussion. But I think one of the things that it points to out of all the th- things, one of them it could point to is we do not in America have what I would call a rugged commitment to a thing called the local church saying this is a part of my life. This is something I have to have ingrained into my being, my existence, my kids' existence. I want my family to know this is life-giving. As a whole, in America, that is tailing off. Now, the question is, why? Why is it? Now, I'm not a reductionist. (laughs) I read some people that will boil why down to one answer. Here it is. This is the silver bullet. Anytime I read silver bullets, I know that it's usually not truth because very seldom do you find a silver bullet in anything in life. So, again, I don't boil it down to one, but I, out of all the reasons that I think are very valid as to why the church, we don't have a rugged commitment to the church and why attendance is shrinking, out of all the things, I I may put five on my list, and this one that we're going to talk about this morning is is in my top five. Doesn't need to be in yours, but it's in mine. So just humor me if you will and follow. It's going to lead us into Acts 8. Now, to introduce my reason, I want to loosely quote a professor I had uh, in Bible school. Uh, his name was Dunn Gordy. Let me give you the history of Dunn before you, because you're going to read this and think, what in the, well, there's a sadistic dude. Uh, but here, he's, he's a southern guy. He always had his big cowboy hat on. He had this, he had this strong southern draw. He, he had a, a warm smile, very friendly, but he was a pioneering missionary. What that means is he was on the front lines. He was outreaching people that are un, would classified as unreached. So he would go to the groups and the part, the people groups of the world that do not have a Bible in their, in, their, in their actual spoken or written language. He would go to the areas of the world where it's oftentimes illegal to talk about Jesus, and he would be at the, the pioneering front side. So you, you can imagine when you're out there on those fringes and then coming back into the American church, he's often left scratching his head and looking at the massive disconnect between the church out there and in the church here. And here's what he said. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why church is declining in America. Here's what he said. The problem with Christians in America <laughs> is that no one wants to kill them. Now, you're not smiling. There's humor in that. There's some reality to it, but there's also humor. So what he's really saying, what he's really saying, here's how I would put it in my words, is the church matters most when we are persecuted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so what it really is saying is when I am out living for the message of Jesus and I am out making Jesus known to the world, I will be persecuted. We're going to talk about that this morning. There is no two fans or buts about it. So when he says the problem with the church in America is that no one wants to kill them, what he's really saying is we're really not presenting Jesus to the world. 
possibly. The second reason why the church matters most um, when we are persecuted is because when I'm out there presenting Jesus to the world and I'm beat up and I'm kicked around and I have my life threatened, I need a family to come home to. Suddenly, this group becomes a lot more important to me. This isn't just a social thing to do and to check off the list. This is life to me because the local church is the hope of the world, and I'm a part of that hope and a part of that message of Jesus Christ, and I've got to come home to find strength and sustenance and support and and binding up my wounds so that I can go out again into this week and do it again. So that's really, I think, something. Now, Now, here's the thing. I have this word persecuted in, in little, it's bigger to have it stick out for us. And here's why. I find that most of us in America are disconnected from that word. Here's why. It's understandable. When you see that word and see it connected with church, what do you think? Well, that's not us. That's where? That's over there. That's in Saudi Arabia. That's in China. That's in Southeast Asia, Indonesia. That's, that's, in, that's in places, up, that's not here. So th- th- we're a little bit disconnected there. The second thing I find we're disconnected is because most of us in this room are terrified. And I'll whisper, we're terrified by pain. Do you realize that much of our decision-making in a given week, much of what consumes us and consumes our thoughts is driven towards our own comfort? And we work so hard to avoid pain and discomfort. We work very hard. I mean, <laughs> for heaven's sakes, our, our thermostat's on our wall, you know, right? Chris just talked about it, didn't he? Think of June. Why, why are we thinking of June? Because we hate the weather right now, so let's make sure we work so hard to keep our homes heated to our own comfort levels. In, the winter, in, in June, what are we all going to be saying? Think of December, right? It's what we, we, we're always, we're working hard. We make, here's this one, out of the thousands of decisions that work, your, your mind processes all kinds of information, you make 200, roughly, if you're an average American, you make 220 decisions a day simply on the food that you're going to put in your body. Now you say, no, you think about it. Okay, we went out to eat as a family yesterday. Uh, we're blessed with a gift. To, we went out and, and we sit down. And, and as we're sitting there looking at the menu, you think, well, I don't want that. Or maybe I should get that. And, and right there in that moment, I bet I had 25 decisions, bang, 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 just looking at the menu. But as you think about those decisions, what are those decisions geared towards? They're geared towards taking care of me. What am I going to enjoy? What's going to help me feel good? Right? So we, we, we medicate pain. We push pain away. We, we do everything we can to avoid this thing called pain. So there's this real disconnect. Now, the problem steps in for us then is Jesus and the scriptures promise this to us. So what do we do with that? More than our promise, let me, let me say something even more crazy. <laughs> the scriptures actually and the scripture writers seem to seek after it. they almost like, hey, Bring it on. I want it. Now, a couple verses. Show me. I'm not, I'll show you I'm not crazy. This is stuff that, do you remember what I told you? This is Jesus talking to these disciples who are, we're reading about all in the book of Acts who start this thing called a church. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than, whew, didn't want me to read that. <laughs> a slave is not greater than the master. Since they, say it with me. Say, what's the word? Go ahead. Persecuted me. Naturally, they will persecute you. So Jesus says, listen, guys, you follow me. You're following in my footsteps because what they do to me, they're going to do to you. What did they do to Jesus? 
hung him on a cross. Now, here's another one. This is, this is the Apostle Paul who, who persecuted the church. We're going to read about him right here in chapter 8, who, who was on a mission to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Anything that professed the name of Jesus, then he becomes a Christ follower, and then he plants these things called churches, becomes the biggest champion of the church. But this is what he says, yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer, say it with me again, so will suffer persecution. Now, even crazier, crazier yet, and we're going to look at a couple of, another verse later that captures the same thought. This is also the Apostle Paul, who again was pers- who persecuted, then, then was persecuted himself. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. And all of you say, amen, that's what I want. I want to know Jesus. Now look, what continue. I want to suffer with him? Um, Paul. <laughs> Come on, dude. Are you feeling okay? I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death? So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. It's promised and it's sought after, persecution. Nick Ripkin is kind of a hero of mine. It's not his real name, it's his pen name. Uh, he does that for safety reasons. He was a missionary in Somalia. Um, he saw horrendous things. He saw, he tried to plant the church in Somalia. And, and when, until he left, every person that he saw convert to the message of Jesus Christ ended up losing their head. So he leaves, his son dies, he goes home, he, he's devastated. He tries to put the pieces all back together. And putting the pieces back together, he travels then the, the, the whole, all the way into Southeast Asia, up into Eastern Europe, and just works through the persecuted church and says, teach me. How does the church of Jesus Christ thrive in persecution? And here's what he says. Here's one of the things he says. He says this to the church of America. The hope that we can somehow be obedient and avoid persecution is a naive and misplaced hope. It just simply can't happen. Now, with that said, I want to raise a question in a minute, but let's read Acts chapter 8 first. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Pause right there. Two weeks ago, we talked about the organized organism, how how the church is beginning to grow, and they've got to add organizational structure. If you remember, we talked about that, but yet it's still an organism, and we want to have life. So the leaders stepped back and said, we've got to do what only we can do, and we've got to stay focused on the mission, and we've got to stay focused on what is it God's telling us. So they really focused on prayer and reading the scriptures and making sure they stayed at that level, and then they appointed, and they asked the people to kind of get behind this, and, and the people ultimately, the people themselves actually raised up and picked these seven. One of the seven's name was Stephen. Stephen was the first guy that we have recorded in the scriptures who was killed for believing in Jesus Christ. So he was just put to death. Saul, who then becomes Paul, is the guy who oversaw the whole thing. Saul then goes on a, he is on a mission. Look at the rest of the verse. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. Now let me pause right there. We read that and just, oh, that's nice. So we just kind of read it as fact. I want you to think about this. When I read the word wave, as the, as the way the, the New Living translate this, a great wave, I think, I think back in 2004, I believe it was, when I'm sitting at home on my, watching in my TV that tsunami that hit Southeast Asia, <clears throat> Indonesia, all the way up around to India. Some of you were alive and remember that. It is vividly etched in my mind. When you watch a, a shoreline, all the water suck itself out, and then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, this gigantic, huge wave comes in and goes in for a mile, and everything in its path is completely destroyed and sucked right back out to sea. I remember watching the, the footage of seeing the carnage and the destruction and the loss of life. That's what we're reading here. 
a great wave of destruction. Continue reading. Um, It says, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. I want you to think of the relational loss that comes with these verses. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So I want to pause right here. I want you to think, this isn't just the carnage and the destruction. You think of a husband that is lost, a wife that is lost, They're losing children, they're losing uncles and aunts, and they're losing their jobs, and they're losing their community, and they're being uprooted and torn and being scattered all about, and their life is in complete and total upheaval. Now look at verse 4. But, I love the word but in Scripture. Every time it comes, it means it's going to usually shift something on us. But the believers who were scattered, look at what they did. They preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. It's not the response I expect to read. That's not the response I think we would read if it were happened here in America. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. Most of us in America, when this stuff up, when there's up people, what do we do? We decry and we, we get on social media and rail on our government. And we may rail on our leaders and talk about all the horrible things that are happening. Not these. Everywhere they go, there's a sweet aroma coming from their lips. It is, tell, let me tell you about Jesus. Yeah, I'm being killed right now. Yeah, I've lost my dad. I've lost my husband. I've lost my wife. I've lost my job. I don't know where I'm going to lay my head tomorrow, but let me tell you about Jesus. I love it. And the church grew. Now, what I find about this, this is very interesting to me. I want to think about this. Here's Here's how I'll say it. True faith results in persecution. That's a given. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. Okay, so we're going to come back to that one. Now, persecution can, and I will say can, because there are stories where where persecution actually destroys the church completely. Somalia is a great example of that. But persecution can drive true faith. It means it can grow my roots deeper. It can prove whether it's kind of like gold being thrown in the furnace. We're going to cook out all the impurities, and we're going to see the the cream rise to the top, right? Uh, It can also mean that that, that through persecution, that that here's how it worked in the book of Acts. Here's how it spread. Think back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go and be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where else? Ends of the earth. Where were the leaders that that Jesus told to do that? It tells us right here in this verse. Where were they? Where were they hanging out? In Jerusalem. They were hanging out in Jerusalem. I think God's like, okay, guys, listen. Listen. You got to move. Now, I don't know why he chose persecution to do it, but persecution steps in, and guess what they do? They move. The church spreads. It spreads into Africa. When you study church history, this is when the church moved out into Africa. This This is when suddenly the church goes. All because... Persecution can drive true faith and spread it. Now, here's the question I want to wrestle with for the next uh, bit of time. Why aren't we persecuted? Here in America, why aren't we persecuted? Now, again, there's a lot of answers you can give to this, and I encourage continue the discussion at home as a family. Talk about it in your life groups. Talk about it with your friends. Why aren't we persecuted? Again, I'm not a reductionist. I'm not going to boil it all down to one simple thing, but I want to just kick around a few thoughts as to why, and then I will challenge us um, here with it. Why aren't we persecuted? Well, I went to, I went to our student ministry director, Grant Gaiman, uh, who does a phenomenal job with our teenagers. It just does a phenomenal job. And I thought I went to him and I talked with him because, here's why I talked with him. If there's one group of people consistently that will be persecuted, it's got to be those in public school. 
You know, once you get out of public school, you can kind of, you can, but when you're in public school, like that group more than any other should, if anyone is persecuted in America, it's that group. It's a, it's a Christian teenager who's going to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. Now, secondly, he interacts with college students. And I'm thinking, well, you know what? Those who are on a state university, and they're facing it too. So if any group is facing it, so Grant, I step towards Grant, and Grant begins to interact with the teenagers that he knows and tells me his stories. He says, Adam, as a large whole, they will tell you here in this area, they do not face persecution. I said, really? Oh, sure. They'll tell you stories of being made fun of because they're not going to have sex until they're married. And they'll tell you stories of being made fun of because they had a Bible with them. or because. And that, but as a whole, they don't understand this word, persecution. So we're scratching our heads, and I thought, now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. I know because I'm a parent of four kids a really big issue, a social issue in today's public school is this word that begins with a B. You know what it is? Bullying. Isn't bullying persecution? So I began to scratch my head on this, and I thought, no, wait a minute. So Grant, and we asked the teenagers, and the teenagers say, oh, yeah, I know all about bullying. And you hear stories about it. It's anytime someone's outside of the norm. So example, my face may have a complexion. It's outside of the norm, so I get made fun of and bullied. My brain may work differently. I may have learning disabilities that put me outside of the norm, so I get made fun of. I come from a, a, from a family or an ethnic background. It's outside of the norm of my area, so I get made fun of. I dress different, and I'm outside of the norm. So we began to realize anything that's outside of the norm We bully. In fact, we, meaning us, I think we do it. I want to use an example here to show how we do this. How many of you know the name Colin Kaepernick? I hear someone, huh? Right? Now, here's the deal. I'm not bringing this up to give my opinion on Colin Kaepernick. I will tell you, the video I'm going to show, he is playing the Miami Dolphins, and we did beat him, so that's kind of cool. I'll just, for what it's worth, I'll throw that out. I'm a Miami Dolphins fan. Now, Colin Kaepernick, for those of you who don't know, Colin Kaepernick decided at the beginning of this year to take a knee during the national anthem because he's trying to say that especially the minorities, the black minority that he is in, according to him, are not treated well, and it's at the hands of this guy, and he has all these reasons why, so he takes a knee. Now, that is outside of the norm, right? Because ever since I've been a little boy and played organized sports, always we play the national anthem and you stand up. So what he is doing is outside of the norm, and he's paying for it. Go ahead and watch this video. Colin Kaepernick, he had the electrifying start to his career, nearly took the 49ers to back-to-back Super Bowls, took him to a pair of NFC Championship games, and you hear the crowd immediately letting their feelings known on Colin Kaepernick. It was a huge story this week about Kaepernick wearing a Fidel Castro t-shirt and an exchange he had with a local writer. And it's been all over the newspapers. And, of course, after Castro's death yesterday, that has been the story, and I mean around-the-clock story, as it naturally would be here in South Florida. So you'll hear a lot of this all day today. First thing I say before commenting, aren't those colors amazing, those Dolphins? That's why I became a Dolphins fan. I could always ask this all the time, why are you a Dolphins fan? I'm saying... Their colors are awesome. I mean, that orange and that teal, I mean, that's, anyway, way back when I was a kid. Now, Colin Kaepernick, he's outside of the norm. That particular week is the week Fidel Castro died. And he wore a T-shirt earlier in the week that had Fidel Castro and Malcolm X. And, and, and the news outlets grossly misrepresented what he said. I mean, I will just say that. I wouldn't want to really listen to it. Not, again, I'm not saying I agree or disagree, but they grossly misrepresented. And he has received death threats. 
for his stance that he's taken because he believes in something, but he's outside of the norm. So I ask the question, is that what Jesus has in mind when he talks about persecution? Is he saying because Christians are going to live a life that's going to take them outside of the norm, they're going to be persecuted? I think partly, partially yes. Let me show you this one. 1 Peter 4.4, 4. of course, this whole chapter, if you want to study in persecution, this whole chapter is a great study. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do, so they what? So they make fun of you, they give you a hard time, they get on Facebook and Instagram and every other place and, and just treat you like, what an idiot, why would you do that? I mean, come on, get up to the 21st century. So, so by living as a Christ follower, you're going to take yourself outside of the social norm at some level, you're going to be persecuted. But however, I don't think that's all that Jesus has in mind. First Peter 4, look at what Peter does. He, he reorients people to say, okay, you are going to be slandered, but, again, here's this transition again. So you're going to be slandered, but remember something. Remember that they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone. I want you to pause right here. I want you to remember. And we're going to talk about this. We're going to stay on mission. Don't get lost. Don't get down in the weeds. Don't engage them with their tactics. Remember, they're going to be judged. They're going to face a creator, the same creator you're going to face. Do you love them? Do you care about them? Are you taking the message of Jesus to them? Look at this. Both, so God, who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead, that is why the good news was preached. So remember, this is why the message of Jesus was preached to those who are now dead. So those who can't believe, those who can't follow Jesus, those who are, who are outside of the body of Christ, the message was preached to them. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the spirit. So, I, yes, we're going to be persecuted because we're outside the norm, but that's not all. It's not all the scriptures are talking about. The scriptures are talking about you're going to be persecuted because you're calling people to respond to the message of Jesus Christ. Unpack a little more with you, if you allow me. Oftentimes, I'll hear pastors say to me and, and other Christians will say, well, persecution, Adam, we may not be facing it now, but it's coming. And when they say that, I'll say, well, why do you say that? Tell me about that. I want to learn. What do you think? And usually what they do is they'll state something about the last 60 years. And I'll say, might you be looking at the past through rose-colored glasses? For example, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says it this way. Solomon, the wisest guy that ever lived, says, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. We have to understand, when we look back, we look through rose-colored lenses. Because what I hear people say, people say, man, Now, I want to talk with respect here because I'm going to talk to the baby boomers in the room. I wasn't living back then. I only have what I read and have read about. But I hear people talk about the past and they'll say persecution is coming because we're a political mess and there's social chaos everywhere in America. And I'll say, is that different? Were the 1950s really the golden era of godly culture and family values? Sure, they might be if you were a white, middle-class suburbanite. Maybe, yes, you can say that. But if you were a black man living in an inner city, especially in the South, you were treated like a dog. It's deplorable the things that Christians even did to them. When you were living with the remains of the Jim Crow laws... This is why I get really nervous when I hear baby boomers decry the moral political chaos of today, which it is, it is. But oftentimes they're looking back as though it wasn't back there. 
But think about it. What I've read in my history books, political leaders were shot at back then about as often as rap artists are today. There was an unpopular war that cost 58,000 American lives. And then when those Americans returned home, they were living, had a door slammed in their face. There was promiscuous and free sex and hallucinatory drugs that were told this is the gateway to freedom and enlightenment. There were race riots galore and, and fire hoses turned on people and dogs set loose. Police were called pigs. And worse, some people wore leisure suits in public and were proud of it. I said I'd get that into light in the mood a little. So when people say to me, Adam, persecution is coming because of this, I say, well, I don't know. Well, let me go a step further. People will then say, well, Adam, um, and, and Nick Ripkin in his book, uh, Insanity of Obedience, talks about this. Oftentimes pastors will say persecution is coming, and he'll say to them, well, explain to me why. And they'll not only talk about the past, but they'll talk about our current social stance in the country on homosexuality and abortion. Now... Let me take a pause here again. Don't mishear me. Both of those things are important issues that Christians should have a view and a stance on. However, is that why persecution is going to come to America? Think about it. The U.S. church opposing homosexuality and abortion is the same stance that the conservative Islamic state like Saudi Arabia takes, where Christians have their tongues ripped out. Are social issues important? Absolutely. Does the gospel work in conjunction with social issues? Absolutely. If you're a Christ follower, you're going to care deeply about the welfare of humanity. But is that what we're to be known for? In Saudi Arabia, you are persecuted as a Christ follower because it's directly related to making Jesus known. And that is what America is missing, in my opinion. Nick Ripkin says it this way. He says, our interviews, as he traveled all over the globe, had thousands of interviews with, again, the persecuted uh, Christ follower. He says, our interviews suggest that access to the gospel by itself is not a direct correlation of increased persecution. So let me pause right there. Access to the gospel. Right now in America, at about every street corner in a city, there is a gospel preaching church talking about Jesus. There is access to the message of Jesus all throughout this land. But that's not an indicator. Just because there's access doesn't mean there's persecution. Nick Ripkin goes on, the clearest predictor of persecution, the clearest predictor of persecution is response to the gospel. When people actually begin to say, aha, I am a sinner. I can't fix it. I'm going to now repent and step towards Jesus Christ. In other words, how often are we in America calling people to respond to the gospel? Don't many of us shrink away from this? Just yesterday, I'm walking through, um, two days ago, I'm walking through Shady Maple. And I stopped to look. Um, I, have a, I have someone I love dearly who moved to the area, and um, I wanted to welcome him, and he loves sushi. So where do you get sushi in East Earl, right? So I go to Shady Maple. Have you ever been there at a sushi bar? And I'm standing there, and I don't know what I'm looking at. I want to buy this guy sushi because I love him, but I don't know what, what, what is this stuff. I don't eat this. I don't know what it's. So I'm there trying to talk about it, and this lady walks up beside me, and she, she uh, looks at me, and she goes, you look really familiar, now, I get that from time to time. I don't know why. I just, you know, so we start talking. Well, where would you go to school? Nope, strike there. Where do you live? Strike there. We can't find any connection. So I finally thought, well, maybe she's been here. <laughs> so I said, do you go to church anywhere? Oh, no. Uh-uh. Now, I did. I used to go to this, this place called um, LCBC, but I didn't like it. I don't go there. Now, inside of me, I have a prick in my conscience. Talk further, Adam. 
push in. Talk to her about Jesus. Take it beyond church. She clearly just laid something out for you that there's something in there. Step into it. What did I do? I've got my sushi. I'm heading back to get a birthday cake now because it's this individual's birthday. I wanted to celebrate him. I'm on a mission. I have my daughter. We got to get out of here. We do it. How often in a week? In fact, let me ask it this way. When's the last time you looked at someone in the eyes and said, you're a sinner, you can't fix it, and unless you embrace Jesus, you're going to spend an eternity in a place called hell or anything like that? Most of us don't go there. Most of us don't call people to respond to the gospel. In fact, most of us struggle to live the gospel out, let alone call people to respond to it. Now, here's what I want to do the little bit of time I've left. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. I want to give you some, I almost want to beat this up. I want to give you some tools on how we say, well, Adam, how do we do this? How do we, here's, here's how I'd say it. You want to be, I've used this before, you want to be a meat thermometer. When you step towards people, your goal is to find out, is God here working? What, what is this? So I'm going to step, so that lady in the shady maple, I'm going to step towards her and find out, is God working? Is God drawing her to himself? And can I aid in that process? So Matthew chapter 7 says it this way. It's page 804 in the Bibles uh, there in the seats in front. It says, do not judge others and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friends, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now here comes that, that, that right there will preach. Everything I just said, man, man, is that needed in today's world. Verse 6. Don't Waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Then he's going to give a repeat of an emphasis. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and what? Attack you. Now, what Jesus is saying here, in my opinion, is shut up. Get off of social media. Quit declaring your truth. Keep the main thing the main thing. Find out who is this person you are interacting with and love them well and engage them. You don't need to be right all the time. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He said it very clearly. I've come to engage a broken and lost and devastated world. I haven't come just to be right. I've come to engage people and love people. And here's what I've learned about pigs. My grandfather was a pig broker. I used to go to the Lancaster stockyards when they were there, and I'd see all these pigs. And I learned something about a pig. They're nasty creatures. Did you know in America more people die from a pig attack than a shark attack in every given year? But for some reason, we're petrified by sharks, but we love pigs. I go into some of your homes, you've got pigs, like, sitting all around. Like, pigs are the thing to collect. These things are nasty animals. Pigs when they're not nourished, get really nasty. I learned it. I watch it all the time. There were people that died in that stockyard that my grandfather worked at because of a pig. So what is Jesus saying here? What does a pig need to sustain itself? Pearls or slop? Precious, priceless pearls or a bucket of ugh? 
What does a pig need? Think about a dog. Some of your translations, instead of saying, some of your translations says don't waste what is holy and people who aren't holy. It says don't give the dogs the sacred things. So what does a dog need? Pages from my scriptures or kibbles and bits? And what I find, sometimes we as Christians, and we mean well. We want to engage the world, but we're going about it all the wrong way. We're just going to step out with our truth. We're going to tell people about their vaccines and and why they shouldn't. And we're going to tell people about why you shouldn't eat at McDonald's and how you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage and what you should know about health care. And and we're going to step in and say how your kids shouldn't be more than one sport a year and how we're we're going to step in and give our opinions and all kinds of who you should vote for and who you shouldn't vote for. But is it the main thing? We get lost sometimes. Here's how Jesus did this. You know, Jesus told stories all the time. And and if I ask you a question, why did Jesus tell stories? Number one, I'd say it made his messages a lot better. I mean, don't you love when a pastor tells stories? It's like, yeah, it's cool. We like stories. But most Christians think Jesus told stories to make the truth more accessible and easy to understand. Go this week and read Mark chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 13. Both of them tell you Jesus told stories to hide, disguise, and make it hard for people to believe the truth. You say, what? I think it's this principle right here. He's asking, is this a pig or is this a dog or is this someone who's seeking truth? And I'm not just going to dispense truth to whoever. I want to know where they at. So I'm going to hide the truth, massage the truth. And if they really want it, if God is working inside them, God has drawn himself, then they're going to engage and step towards it. Consider this verse, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus says this, Look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Now, again, a sheep has no defense against a wolf aside from a shepherd or sheepdog or, 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 or in today's world, a gun. Uh, so be as shrewd. Look at this. Shrewd. When is the last time you heard someone in my profession challenge you to be shrewd? Some of your translations use the word cunning. Most Christians think, well, that's a sin, shrewd. Oh, that's political. I don't know. We got to be honest, people. So be as shrewd as snakes. Snakes are nasty animals. I can't stand those things. And harmless as doves. So don't sin, but be shrewd. Give you one example how Jesus did this. You can see it from Matthew chapter 22. If you look at it this week, Jesus, um, they're, they're, the, the religious leaders are going to trip, trick him, try and get him, I should say, uh, with politics. Now, you want to trip a pastor up, just get him engaged in politics. It is a, you just, that's why I don't go there. So they step in and they think, okay, here's the story. We're going to ask Jesus, should you pay taxes, Jesus? Now, the the religious leaders know. They aren't coming to seek truth. They know full well that if he says yes, that was a hot-button political issue of the day, that every Jewish person in his audience would have heard him say that and checked out right then and there, if not come after his life. Rome was a horrendous, they were so overtaxed and misused and abused. So, okay, so if Jesus says yes, then the Jews get ticked off. If he says no, Rome will take his head off. Problem solved, they think. So Jesus, should we pay taxes? I picture Jesus looking back at him and saying, well, do you have a coin? Flips him a coin, Jesus catches it. I picture Jesus standing there studying the coin, letting the silence set in. He looks back and whose face is on this coin? Well, Jesus, it's Caesar. So they think, we got him. He's going to say it. Yes, pay to Caesar. So Jesus replies, well, you know what? I see him flicking it back. 
the guy catching it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God, God's. What? Jesus, you didn't answer my question. What are you, I mean, come on, Jesus, yes or no? I mean, you can't answer it like that. That's shrewd. He didn't answer it. He completely sidestepped it and basically named both sides. You know, I really get nervous when I hear religious leaders today standing our past election and telling people who to vote for and who not to vote for. I get really nervous when I hear religious leaders starting to get align themselves with one political party over another, either side of the coin. Scott, someone here in the church shared a, a great quote with me. Scott Souls uh, wrote a book, used to be a pastor, served under Tim Keller after a message he preached where he got attacked from both political sides. He comes to his boss, Tim Keller, many of you know Tim, pastor, and, and, and says this, you know, what do I do? And Tim says, the longer it takes people to figure out where we stand in politics, in all likelihood, the more faithfully we are preaching Jesus. Here's why I'd boil it down. Yes, engage social issues, but do it on a mission. Do it because you love people and care for people and you're engaged with them. Not to be right, not to be true, and not to throw another pearl out to the pig. Do it well. Let me close and go to prayer. This 1 Peter 4.12 says this. Dear friends, as we looked at this passage, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, look at this, instead, instead, Peter, what are you saying? Be very glad. Now, this is Peter. This is the Peter, some of you know the story, who when Jesus was arrested, was having his beard yanked on, was being spit on and slapped around, and he's kind of standing back at a distance, and they say, oh, then don't you know this guy? Don't you associate with him? I know nothing. Three times he denies. Now, here he is later in life saying, no, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. In other words, here's how I paraphrase that. True faith results in persecution, and persecution can drive true faith. Now, the passage continues and says this. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. For the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be. Now, he's going to list a bunch of things. In other words, some of us, sometimes I suffer because I'm an idiot. Okay, I'll just name it. I'll put my hand up on that one. Sometimes I suffer because I'm just foolish or because sometimes I'm a sinner, right? So don't suffer. Don't, don't take a pat on the back and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a martyr because you're a murderer. You're stealing, making trouble or prying into, this is the thing that's most relevant, prying into other people's affairs. Wow, we do that a lot. Social media is all about prying into other people's affairs and and peeling the curtains back on something. Grant says it this way as he talks about his teenagers that he works with and loves so much. He says, Adam, my passion for young people today that I work with is that they would just learn to get over themselves. Now, he says this with love because when you talk to you, I I have such a burden for young people today. It's a scary world. Their bodies are changing. I, would, I don't want to go back to those days ever again. I mean, I'm so glad that's behind me. But physiologically, they're changing. Their bodies are changing. Their minds are changing. All this heightened, all this stuff, and they're getting awkward, and, and everyone's noticing and looking. And they have all this pressure put in on them to determine, what are you going to do when you graduate? Well, let's take a breath. And then they have all this pressure, like, you can do anything in the world. It puts so much pressure on young people today. So Grant says, I just want to free them from having to be so self-conscious and so consumed with themselves and all this awkwardness. I just want to free them to get over themselves. 
And building on that, do you know the greatest tool that you personally will ever give to Satan to use against you? The greatest thing you will ever give to him is your fear. Your fear. Andy Stanley ended with a message two weeks ago with this quote. And I want to come back to it because I think it's, it's rich. This was from a conference I was at a few weeks back with him. And he said this, when you no longer fear death, you no longer cling to the things of this life. Fearlessness always results in selflessness. So I'd end by simply saying this. For those of you in this room that are Christ followers, let's love people well. Let's engage them. Let's keep the main thing the main thing and stay on mission. And let's step towards people and help them respond to the gospel. Not my stance on whether anyway, a person should stand or sit during the national anthem. Let's step towards people and love them well and help them respond to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I'll just confess to you as I studied this week, and I pray for all of us in this room, I think most of us are void of persecution. Not all here in this room, but most. God, would we push in on that and ask why? Because you promise it. You tell us it will come. I think the greatest gift that I can give to this church, I can give to my own children, I can give to myself, is, is the fortitude, the strength, the inner um, love of you to be able to stand and face persecution. Help us to do that. But more than anything, God, help us to do it for the right reasons because we are stepping towards people. We're engaging them where they're at with the message of Jesus Christ and calling them to respond because we're loving them and walking with them, not just trying to change them or live with an agenda or throw our precious truth out to them. Help us to love and love well. God, I find, the final thing I pray for is those in this room that I know this message was heavily focused and, and talking to the, the person in this room that is a Christ follower. God, there's some in this room that, that may have already checked out or, or stopped listening because they, they're just not sure who you are or what it means to live in relationship with you or they're not sure where they'd go when they die. Or, um, God, I pray right now for that person. I just take a moment to earnestly pray that they would hear you whispering to them and calling them. God, would they know that the truth isn't always going to be laid out there for them? I pray that they would go seek it. They would chase it down. They would peel back the layers of the onion and then explore and, and wrestle and step in and talk to you. But God, more than anything, they would recognize that they're a sinner. And they would wrestle with, well, what do I do with sin? Because sin cannot enter your eternity, God. God, I pray. I pray for them. I pray that they would respond to Jesus. I pray to put their faith and trust in Jesus, confessing their sin and following you. God, thank you for the person that invited them here. Thank you that they're engaged with them and walking with them. And, and I pray that they would be a blessing in their life. God, we love you. Thank you so much for Jesus. And I pray, God, more than anything as I close here, as this team gathers behind me to sing a song as we get ready to leave, God, help us to get over ourselves. Help us not to be so afraid of of pain and suffering and persecution and other people's opinions. 
Help us to be bold and courageous and loving as we engage this broken world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.